You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, in, uh, in cultural anthropology, one of the ways that different cultures are categorized and differentiated is to make a distinction between guilt and innocence cultures, fear and power cultures, and then shame and honor cultures. These are the ways that these people interact with each other and even see themselves and see the world around them. Guilt, innocence, fear, power, or shame and honor. One of the first people to use these classifications was a woman named Ruth Benedict. She wrote a book called The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. The uh, the U.S. Office of War Information actually asked her to do this research on Japanese culture during World War II. We couldn't figure out at the time why Japanese soldiers would rather die than surrender, no matter the circumstances, and why they had thousands of kamikaze pilots who would use their planes themselves as a weapon on suicide missions. And what Ruth Benedict discovered in her research was that shame and honor were the driving motivators in Japanese culture. That getting captured brought you shame, but dying for your country brought honor to you as you gave your life for the emperor and for your country. It brought you and your family honor. It was very confusing to the United States, because we are not a shame and honor culture. We are much more a guilt and innocence culture. We tend to think primarily in terms of right and wrong, fair and unfair. And then, as I've said, there are fear-based cultures. This would be in some Latin American places, Africa and Asia, where their, their lives are based more on fear and power as opposed to guilt and innocence. There's a struggle with the supernatural with different gods or ancestors or spirits, with a fear of what the supernatural might do and a desire to have power over them. Guilt and innocence, fear and power, shame and honor. Shame and honor cultures in particular are generally very collectivist. The primary issue isn't about individuals keeping or breaking rules, but rather social norms. Have I acted honorably or dishonorably? So acquiring honor and avoiding shame are the highest goals. They're almost shame and honor, almost like a social credit system where your most valuable asset is your reputation. So if you think even today about places in the world where you hear things about families disowning children or even honor killings, what's happening there is that they believe that someone in their family has brought shame upon their family by something that they've done. And they believe a way that they can restore their family's honor is to disown this person or even kill this person. And in reality, in that community, it does restore their honor, other people's perception of their family. That's the dynamic at play. And that's, what, that's the degree to which this social credit system of shame and honor can operate. So that's not the way that you and I tend to operate. Of course, we can still experience shame, But we're not nearly as sensitive to it as people from those other parts of the world. And sometimes we're not as clear on what it is and and how it works. More on all that later. Relevant information for now is that in the first century world that Jesus inhabited, they certainly had elements of guilt and innocence and fear and power, 
but it was predominantly a shame and honor culture. I'm setting that up so that you don't miss some very important things that Jesus does. And a great example is the very short passage we'll look at today in Luke chapter 5. So why don't you turn to Luke chapter 5. I want to look at one encounter that Jesus has with someone as we wrap up our In Christ series today. We're looking at the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says we have every spiritual blessing because we are in Christ. And so we've just been doing some meditations and examples of what those spiritual blessings are. We'll look at our final one today. Luke chapter 5, pick it up in verse 12. It says, while he, this Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. So leprosy is a skin disease, and it's a pretty scary one. Sores would slowly open up all over your body, often very painful sores. They would become porous, which brought a lot of discomfort and pain. You wouldn't want to bathe because the open sores and wounds hurt so badly. Over time, it caused, it caused very serious nerve damage, and so you'd be desensitized. You wouldn't be aware of what was happening to your body. You could get burned. You wouldn't even feel it. So oftentimes, people would begin losing appendages and limbs because they were so desensitized and numb. It's horrifying. And then on top of that, in ancient Israel, it wasn't just a physical condition. It was a social condition. It was not just a disease that someone might have. It was a contagious disease. People realized you could catch this from other people. It could be transmitted person to person. And so if you touched a leper, it was believed that you had a good chance of becoming one yourself. So if you were a leper, you're a social outcast. You're seen as filthy and gross, repugnant, repulsive to the people around you. People began to believe that you couldn't let a leper into your house or your house would be contaminated. You wouldn't want to walk where a leper had just walked because of what it might do to you. If you had leprosy, you couldn't go to the temple to worship. So in no meaningful way do you get to participate in your community. And then listen to this from the book of Leviticus. This is Leviticus 13. It says, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean, as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean, and he must live alone. So in a very silly way, it reminds me a little bit of uh, playing golf. So there's course etiquette when you play golf. If you hit a bad shot and it's going towards someone else, you want to warn them very quickly. They need to watch out. And so you yell four, and you yell that, and that means, you know, watch out. And so when you play golf, you hit a bad shot, you yell four, and it's this way of saying, I'm sorry that I'm so bad at golf that you are now at physical danger because of my presence. It's unfortunate timing for you that you're playing golf at a time when I'm also incompetently, incompetently playing golf. This is not a very much meaningless, sorry I hit a bad shot, watch out. This is actually about, this is about your very self. It says you have to live alone, 
You have to make sure that your physical body and dress indicate to others that something's wrong with you. So just by your appearance, they can tell this you're not right. And when you see another person, you have to yell to let them know that you're near so that they can stay away from you. So he has to yell out unclean anytime he sees another person as a way of saying, you need to be careful because I am a danger. I am disgusting. I am toxic. You do not want to come near me. So can you, can you even imagine the psychological effects of this? Like, like some of you have horribly negative self-talk that you just internalize and the thoughts that you have about yourself. Can you even imagine though? I mean, that does enough damage as it is. Can you imagine you have to verbalize something like this every time you come in contact with another person? Every time you see another human, you have to say, stay away. Something's wrong with me. You can't get close to me. I'm gross. I'm disgusting. And on top of all of that, people then wrongly thought that lepers were cursed of God. And so usually when they needed compassion, they didn't receive it. And Luke says that this man comes to Jesus and he's, quote, full of leprosy. So this is well advanced. This is not new. This would mean that he would have open sores all over himself. Eyes, nose, face, lips, covered with open sores. This is not, this is not cute. This is not a mildly sick person lying in bed with some tissues and it's a nice scene. This is, this is somebody that would have been scary to look at. And this is years of his life for it to be full of leprosy. So his life is absolutely filled with shame. It's not just that he has a physical problem. This man has a deep shame problem. So look what happens next. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So he comes to Jesus uh, and, you know, instead of keeping his distance, which there's some boldness there for sure, falls down at Jesus's feet, bows down, honors him. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So think about, think about that statement for a second. He doesn't, he's not doubting whether or not Jesus has the power, the ability to make him clean. He knows Jesus has the power to make him clean. What he doubts is if anybody would be willing to actually help him. Would you be willing to? I know you can do this. Is it something you'd be willing to do? This is a guy who has lived years of his life with everyone ignoring him, running away from him, not walking towards him. For many people around him, the greatest fear they had was touching him. So he's, he's gross, he's defiled, he's cursed, he's disgusting. His doubt is about Jesus's willingness, not his ability. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. So don't miss that. Like how, how long do you think it's been since someone touched this man? And instead of turning from him, Jesus turns to him, which that in itself would have been different than everybody else. And not only that, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So for everybody else, if you touch a leper, you defile yourself. You run the risk of taking his leprosy upon yourself. 
But Jesus doesn't just keep his hands behind his back and say, okay, be clean. He could have done that. There are times where he heals with just a word. He just says the word. So healing, I mean, so touch is not an essential ingredient in in a healing. But instead, in this moment, Jesus reaches out, puts his hands on this man, heals him. When no one would get near him, now someone's actually touching him. And Jesus says, I'm willing. Be clean. Can you imagine what this man must be thinking as someone shows they're willing to risk taking his defilement upon themselves in order to make him clean. This is who Jesus is, the one willing to take our defilement upon himself in order that we might become clean. So let's talk about shame for a minute. Shame can easily be confused with guilt because they can feel similar. Uh, Part of the reason for that is that they sometimes go hand in hand. When we do something sinful, it is also shameful. So there is guilt and there's shame. We've done something or become something that's not right. Whether we've, you know, done things or gone places or been a part of something that we should not have. We feel this mixture of guilt for our actions, but then also shame for what it says about us. And that's the key difference. Guilt is usually associated with something that I did. So if I say something I shouldn't say to somebody that I care about, I might think, Ah, I shouldn't have said that. Right? That's guilt. I did something wrong. But shame actually runs a little deeper. Shame asks, what's wrong with me? Why would I say something like that? What, what kind of person am I that I would do what I just did? So one way to think about it could be that guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. It's the little thing in us that, that thinks that there's something about me that if people knew it or saw it or realized it, it would make me unworthy of connecting with them, unworthy of being around them. The thing that would embarrass or humiliate us, shame is what lies behind the thoughts of I'm not good enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not smart enough. Beneath all of that is shame, that, that I am actually something wrong. And then there's just this rush of feeling and emotion that comes with shame. Let me give you, I'll give you a a non-emotional example from my life. I played uh, basketball growing up and uh, on my middle school basketball team, we were playing a game and we were just getting destroyed. The other team was killing us. And I was resting on the bench and the guy sent back in, we were shooting free throws. And so I, you know, lined up on the line and was ready to box out. Shot came off the rim, grabbed the ball. And nobody was on me, put it back up, make it. And all of a sudden, everybody just dies laughing. My team is looking at me like, what are you doing? The other team is rolling. Everybody in the stands has their hands on their head. And I realized I wasn't paying attention. The other team was shooting free throws. I just scored for the other team. And middle school me is like, This is what hell is. (laughs) This is it. I've I've got hundreds of people laughing at me, looking at me. I could not wait to get to the bench and put a towel over my head so that people couldn't see me. Now that's a non meaningful example, but do you connect with that feeling? That's shame where I feel exposed, I feel vulnerable, I just want to hide. 
I want to disappear. I don't fit in. I don't belong. I'm weird. I feel lesser than. I feel, I feel wrong. I feel dirty. I'm embarrassed. I'm defiled. I'm damaged. All of that is the emotion and the feeling that comes around shame. Those are the thoughts and the dynamics of shame. So for some of us, shame is actually the reason we have so much friction in some of our relationships. You may know this, you may not. So a few years ago, I was meeting with an engaged couple. We were doing some premarital counseling and they came in for, for the meeting and I could tell they were embarrassed and they needed to tell me something. I was like, what's going on? And they said, we got in a huge fight. I mean, a massive yelling at each other, horrible fight. It's like, okay, what happened? And they both just sheepishly, sheepishly looked down and I could tell they did not want to tell me what happened. And I was like, all right, what, come on, we're good. What was the fight about? Asparagus. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I try not to smile. I'm sorry? We fought over asparagus. Tell me more. <sighs> I like the little skinny asparagus and he likes the big asparagus. And we like yelled at each other about it. It's a huge fight. We talked for a few more minutes. And I said, all right, have you ever heard anybody talk about shame? And they're like, no. I said, so shame is this thing that runs in the back of your mind that says, I'm weird. Something's wrong with me. And if people really found out how weird and different I am, they wouldn't want to be around me anymore. They would want to disconnect from me. And I think what happened was you were worried that because you liked big asparagus instead of little asparagus, that's what would make her finally say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. This weirdo. And they both looked at me as their eyes got huge and they said, oh my gosh, that is exactly what it was. I don't even care about asparagus that much. And I was like, no, no one does. <laughs> Welcome to the human community. We're not, we're not all that preoccupied with asparagus. That's shame. That's rooted in shame. This is why for some of you, you can't accept a compliment. You have to deflect when somebody praises you because you deep down believe you are not worthy of praise of any kind. This is why some of you can't receive a correction or a criticism. It crushes you because you already felt like you were one step away from getting kicked out. And this little criticism might be the thing that everybody finally realizes, you know what, they're not worth it anymore. I heard a guy recently say, Quote, I would never talk to another person the way I talk to myself. That is shame. It's shame. This is why sometimes you can't give people the benefit of the doubt when they don't text you back quick enough. And you immediately are like, see, I knew they didn't like me. See, I knew it. It's not that they don't like you. It's, it's actually your shame. You're projecting that onto other people. And because of that, you're not able to love others well. You can't trust all things the way that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does. 
Shame goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you'll remember, our, our first grandparents ate from the forbidden tree, and it says their eyes were open. They had originally been naked and unashamed, and their instinctive response when they sin is that they cover themselves with fig leaves because they experience shame. They saw themselves for who they were. They felt exposed. They knew they weren't okay. When sin entered, shame entered. And our first parents sought to cover it up and nothing has changed. We're consistently trying to use proverbial fig leaves. So when we feel vulnerable, when we feel shame, we try to escape or numb the feeling. So we're now the most in debt, most obese, most addicted, most medicated group of adults in U.S. history. Some of us spend our entire lives trying to find something we can perfect, our bodies or our lives, thinking if we can just get the outside looking right or be the perfect Instagram mom or build a life that our mom and dad would be proud of, that will no longer feel like something's wrong with us. We pretend, we act tougher than we are, smarter than we are, more competent than we are. We tell jokes because when people laugh, I feel like they might be okay with my presence. Some of us, this even comes out in a religious type way. We play the part of the good Christian. We try to say the right things and do the right things and not because we love God as much as we just want to believe that our good deeds and our presentation can cover for the shame that we feel before God, before others, even, even before ourselves. And sometimes, because we're such a guilt-innocence culture, sometimes we don't even have the language, the, the vocabulary to talk well about all of this. And so it's all fuzzy, and we're not exactly sure you know, how to discuss it or how to talk about it. And that's not helpful at all, because shame grows on secrecy and silence and judgment. So the goal is not that you never feel shame for any reason, just like the goal isn't that you never feel guilt for any reason. That would actually make you a psychopath. So we keep telling ourselves, you know, I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel shame. That doesn't work. You can't actually remove your own shame because shame is relational and social and ultimately spiritual. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but a long, long time ago, uh, Saturday Night Live had a skit that they would do a recurring character named Stuart Smalley. And it was a joke. He was this sort of, you know, kind of wimpy guy. And he would stand in front of a mirror and his catchphrase was, he would try to pump himself up and he would say, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And the joke was, that doesn't work. You can't do that. You can't, you can't take away your own shame because shame is relational, social, spiritual. So it's a, it's a mock that he's trying to remove his own shame and we're all laughing at his expense because we know that's not going to help. That's not going to help. And I know for a fact that there are many of us in the room this morning who have things in our lives, in our past, or in our present that make us feel untouchable or dirty, something that we wish we could forget, something that we've done, something that someone's done to us. We wish we could just wipe it out and get it off of us. And what we need is exactly what this leprous man needed. We need something or someone who can actually take our shame away from us. Something or someone who can make us clean. The beautiful good news is that for those of us in Christ, what Jesus did for this man in the story is what he does for us as well.
And on the cross, Jesus looks at each of us and moves towards each of us. And he says, I am willing to take your shame upon myself. Everything in you that is unacceptable, everything about you that isn't enough, everything that is wrong, that has scarred you, that makes you feel untouchable or dirty or defiled or gross, I'm willing to take all of it and I'm willing to make you whole, to forgive, to restore, to make you clean. Jesus does not turn from us in our shame. He turns to us. He reaches out and touches us to make us clean. And believe it or not, the good news actually gets even better. Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop with taking our shame away, although that would be good enough. He takes it a step further, and Jesus restores our honor. So look back at verse 14. This is an easy-to-miss little detail. Jesus has just said, I'm willing, be clean, leprosy gone. And Jesus says here, says he, he charged him, tell no one, but first go and show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So that might strike as a weird and unimportant Jewish detail, but you miss something big if you don't know what's happening. So what Jesus is referring to here when he says, uh, as Moses commanded, He's referring to a chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 14. Leviticus 14 gives very detailed instructions for someone who has experienced an alleged healing from leprosy or any infectious disease. So the the former leper would schedule an appointment with the priest. The priest was like the spiritual leader of the community. And they would meet at a place outside the city, outside a camp, and the priest would come to verify the healing. They would check and make sure this person has, in fact, been healed. And if the, lef- the leper had been healed, the priest would declare a healing, and he would perform a ceremony. And this ceremony where he'd have two birds. One of the birds would be sacrificed, and the other would be set free. There's this beautiful little image of sin and its effects being forgiven through the sacrifice, and then taken away or removed as the bird is being set free. And then the former leper would be shaved. Remember, they're not allowed to you know, keep their hair. They had to be, let it grow out. So they would just shave. They'd shave their whole body. And then they would uh, take a bath in clean water. And it was this ancient way of saying, you're, you're like, it's like you're born again. You're like a new baby. You're born fresh. God's given you a brand new life, which should sound very familiar if you're a Christian. And then the priest would declare them cleansed. And everything that they had been held back from in society, all the relationships with others, being welcomed into homes, being able to worship at the temple, all of that would be restored through a week-long party. They'd have all these sacrifices and and worship, this week-long restoration party. So can you even imagine that for this man? And he meets Jesus. He's had years of isolation and removal. He meets Jesus He's healed. The priest clears him. And now comes this big party. What if, what if he had a family? A wife or kids, brother or sister, mom or dad? How long since he, since he hugged them or kissed their face or shared a meal or just talked? How long since he's had dinner at someone's home or just hugged someone, been invited to a party, sat down for a meal? He hasn't been able to go to the temple to praise God and worship with his friends and family and community. 
He hasn't been able to have a job or do anything of use to others. He's been, he's been of no use. And now he's back restored, right standing, a full participant in his community. And then at the very end of this week, the priest would do a sort of a weird, interesting thing. You take some of the blood from one of the sacrifices of a lamb, and he'd place some of the blood on the man's ear, on his thumb, and on his big toe, which sounds wild, but it's a symbolic way of saying, you belong to God now, so listen to him. You belong to God, so serve him. You belong to God, walk in his ways. So it's this ceremony to affirm and celebrate this person's restoration to the community of God. That's why Jesus commands the man, go to the priest. I want you to receive this restoration. So what I want you to see is what Jesus is doing here. He's actually restoring this man's honor. He's not just telling him, you have nothing to be ashamed of. He's saying, it's like the bird that was sent away, carrying your shame away. Your dignity is restored. Your worth and honor is restored as a member of God's family. He's no longer an object of shame. He's an object of honor. He gets to go home to his community. He gets to have a job. He gets to take care of his family. He gets to chat with his friends. He gets to worship with his community. So I want you to picture shame as head down, shoulders slumped, trying to disappear don't want people to see you. This man goes home with honor, head up, shoulders back. I get to be a participant in my community and my family and the people of God. Zephaniah three nineteen says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And in Christ, this is precisely what God does for us. This is what life in Christ is supposed to be. Jesus sheds his blood that we can be forgiven and cleansed, our shame removed. And now that we belong to him, we get to listen to him and serve him and follow him because we're brought back into honor. It's in Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are not worthless or gross or dirty or unwanted. It isn't true that if the worst thing about you was known, then no one would want to associate with you because God knows the worst thing about you. And he gave his son so that he could adopt you as his own. By the power of the spirit of God, we're, we're cleansed. And now our ear and thumb and toes are commissioned to listen to God and serve him and walk with him. We're co-heirs with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. We will reign with him. That's honor language. That's, that's head held high language. So Jesus in healing and restoring this man does for him what he does for us, takes our shame away, gives our dignity back, a brand new identity to go live life as if we are reborn. So here's what I know. Some of us in the room live as though we have leprosy. We believe that if people knew the real truth about us, they'd never want anything to do with us. And so we self-protect and we hide. We don't want people to get too close. But as a church family, we have the privilege of being the people who come around one another to celebrate that our shame has been cleansed and removed we get to practice honesty and transparency and model the acceptance that's a reflection of Jesus. 
You can just think about how this transforms communities of people. The fact that we get to give our shame to Jesus and be cleansed. The fact that the gospel speaks a louder word over us than our shame does. We get to be honest and transparent. There's no reason for self-protecting. See, shame lives in secrecy and privacy and judgment. But where you've got a community of people who live authentic, honest lives, who love each other the way Jesus has loved us, shame cannot survive. It's just not soil that shame can grow in. Shame cannot survive in loving light. To be known in your worst and still be loved and accepted will change your entire life. It's a freedom and a joy that most people never taste. This is what's available to us in Christ. See, in Christ, you are not an object of shame. You're an object of honor. You belong to God now, so listen to him. You belong to God now, so serve him. You belong to God now, so trust him and follow in his ways. In Christ, you're an honored child of God, seated with him in the heavenly places. You'll reign with him, and until then, you get to join him in his work. Hold your head high.